Well, I'm sorry that your cultural reference like base is so limited. Hopefully anyone who listens to this will actually enjoy television, unlike you. I'm 28. I'm a pastry chef. I live in Nashville, Tennessee. A couple things about me. I swear like a sailor and I either never text back or I text back four times in a row. I am an ENFP and I'm a Hufflepuff. You can find me on pretty much all social media at Kthro. That's K-T-H-R-O. We're primarily yell about pop culture and the liberal agenda and post pictures of cake. I'm Kaylee. I'm 29 years old. I live in Los Angeles, California. I am a journalist. If you would like to know more about me, do a Google image search for Leslie Nope eating salad gif, and that should pretty much tell you everything you need to know. And if you want to follow me on social media, it is at Kaylee Roberts. Figure out the spelling on your own. <laughs> it's spelled the right way. <laughs> spelled the way it sounds. Uh, just kidding. It's not spelled the way it sounds. I think it is. It's spelled, le- well, no, you're right. It's definitely not. <laughs> it's not spelled the way it sounds. I was gonna say, I think it's spelled no. like Lee, like way, but that's not right either. No, you're not no, Kay. Not at all. No, it's okay. My name is spelled the way it is spelled, and people still get it wrong, so it's fine. Yeah, so it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> So um, we are revisiting some TV shows from the past, starting specifically with one from our past, Wonder Falls, and kind of looking back at a show that failed pretty objectively, but that we kind of loved. And (laughs) yeah, so so here we are revisiting Wonder Falls, probably, gosh, close to 15 years later. Yeah, it came out in 2004. It came before Dead Like Me, right? I think it did. I think so. I think it predates Dead Like Me. Yeah, so I think it's Brian Fuller's first show. This was actually my introduction to Brian Fuller. Oh, wait, I just looked it up. Actually, Dead Like Me predates Wonderfalls. So Dead Like Me was my introduction to Brian Fuller because we, like, had accidental free showtime at the time. And it was it was a very, like, special time in my household because we would never have paid for it. <laughs> right. So... <laughs> We had Showtime too, but I'm sure we didn't pay for it. I'm sure my mom did something where she's like, I'm going to cancel, give me free stuff because she was the queen of that. We like were not even that smart. <laughs> Literally just one day it showed up and we were like, we should probably never call and ask for anything because then this will <laughs> They go might away. take it away. Right. So did you watch the show when it originally aired or did you find it later? I watched... Only the episodes, I don't even think I saw all four that aired on Fox, because wasn't it like only four that Fox actually aired? I have memories of enjoying the show and liking the show, but I actually don't remember a lot of details about it. And so I watched a couple of episodes on TV, but obviously not all of it. I first saw the show, I had reluctantly just dropped out of college because I couldn't afford it and it was the recession. I was living in basically a derelict shack in the middle of Iowa and I went to the library because I was poor and that's all I could afford. And the DVD cover is this cute little viewfinder, like a red viewfinder from your 90s kid or even probably an 80s kid, you'll recognize it. And I was like, all right, I'm on board. I know nothing other than this is the cute cover. And I watched it and I fell in love with it. It came on in 2004 on Fox, which for anyone who is a fan of canceled TV shows, of course, Fox. 
They aired the pilot and it got so-so ratings. And Fox said, let's re-air the pilot on a different time slot next week to try and draw in more viewers to get more people on board. And that brought in quite a few more viewers that did better in ratings. And they thought, oh, okay, let's just move the whole show to this time slot. But they didn't announce that officially or tell anyone because they're idiots. And so when episode two aired, it had even worse ratings than the pilot did. And like so on and so forth. And after four episodes, they were like, nah, and canceled it. But eventually got picked up by some other TV channel, maybe sci-fi, and aired all 13. And then there was a campaign to get it released on DVD. And now it's all on Amazon for like $10. And it's great. Good recap. I also really like your impressions of the Fox execs. Like, meh, eh. Let's try this. Like, I don't... (laughs) I can understand why their logic is this, but the implementation leaves a lot to be desired. (laughs) Oh, maybe it would do better on this night of the week. Totally fair. But maybe tell people and advertise it. (laughs) But this is also like the same network that said, let's definitely air the third or second episode first because, yeah, why not? (sighs) Oh, Firefly. (laughs) I'll never be over it. But anyway quick synopsis of the show for people who are not familiar. Wonder Falls is a TV show about a 24-year-old, I think she's Gen Y, although watching it now in today's world, she's still just as much of a millennial in my mind. Well, those terms I think are like interchangeable. I think Gen Y and millennial is pretty much the same thing. Right. I think we talked about this, about how millennial, air quotes, technically covers like a 30-year time span, even though it's crazy to think that like a 30-something-year-old and like a 14-year-old today could technically be in the same generation. Right. In the show, they call her a Gen Y, I think. But she's 24 years old. She's graduated from Brown with a philosophy degree, and she's overqualified and underapplied in her life, essentially. <laughs> she works at a retail store. One day, a inanimate object starts talking to her and telling her to do things that she doesn't want to do, like interact with the world around her. She reluctantly does it, and hilarity and drama ensues. I think Jay's life philosophy, she really sums it up nicely when she's talking to her friend and she says, everyone in my family works so hard to be dissatisfied. I can be dissatisfied with my life and barely do anything. So why would I do more? Which reminded me when I watched it of Garden State when Mark is like, I'm okay with being unimpressive. I sleep better at night, which I looked it up and they came out in the same year. So apparently it was in like the zeitgeist. Yeah. So the thing about Jay that I think is interesting is I feel like she's a little bit full of shit. (laughs) I think she's like a lot full of shit. I think thou doth protest too much. You know what I mean? Yeah. Not that I think she doesn't believe that she is totally cool with being unimpressive and not trying. I think she still does care a little bit. Yeah, I think she totally cares. I mean, the way that I read Jay is that she's underachieving on purpose because if she doesn't try, she can't fail. And I don't think she like really totally believes that if she does try, she'll do anything impressive. I think that there's a lot of a lot of self-esteem stuff there happening. Yeah, absolutely. She's the classic, if I don't try, I can't fail, so give up before I've even started. And she's had this view of herself since high school. The classmate shows up to the Wonderfalls retail shop and is, are you overeducated and underemployed like you said you'd be in the yearbook? That girl, by the way, reminds me so much of Harmony from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I know she's not Harmony from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but like... Harmony is the girl who was in Dexter, right? 
No, that's Darla. Harmony is the girl who was the Girl Scout in the Adams Family movie, the first one, and then the girl that um, oh, Sarah okay. Miller, the one that like Wednesday yes. wants to scalp yes. in the second one. Yeah. Okay. I I have only seen I've probably have seen all of season one in its entirety of Buffy, but I vaguely know who you're talking about. Well, I'm sorry that your cultural reference like base is so limited that you haven't seen enough of Buffy to understand <laughs> what I'm talking about. Hopefully anyone who listens to this will actually enjoy television, unlike you. I'm sorry. I mean, I don't dislike Buffy. I'm sorry. I just don't have the time to commit to that. It's such like an institution. <laughs> what you mean is she's like a like rah-rah type A, like, oh my God, overachiever type? Well, I just meant literally the actress reminded me of her, but also there is a little bit of that of the, I was the popular girl, but I remember you. Here's a fact from the yearbook. <laughs> right. Uh, like that kind of moment, which has to just be insult to injury for Jay, because she was obviously the too cool for school girl in high school, I feel like. And to have the girl who loved high school and who I'm sure Jay sat in corners and was like, you're peaking now. I hate you about to have her come back and be like, I have a life. I'm a functional adult. What are you up to? This isn't how this is supposed to work. You're supposed to have peaked and I'm supposed to have been better than you. Right. Right. Then you think about that. She wrote that in her yearbook. So you're right. She has apparently had this attitude her whole life, which makes you think that maybe her, like her whole family, his classic, I want to be impressive and try. And so maybe she's like immediately just rejected that as a teenager because that's what teenagers do. Yeah. And, you know, like, this is a, a funny thing that I definitely did not realize when I was watching the show. And I realized as I was reading on Wikipedia about it that her family's names are Darren, Karen, Sharon, and Aaron. And then she's Jay. She's made to be the black sheep in, like, every conceivable way. Like, she's the one they didn't plan for. They ran out of rhyming names. <laughs> I didn't know the dad and mom's names off the top of my head. But it only occurred to me last night that Aaron and Sharon are rhyme. Because I was like, ugh, gross. Who names their kids with rhyming names? Stop it. I mean, obviously, that's meant to show us that she's kind of like the outlier in the family. But that's just added layer to that is that the family did that to her. Like, they knew everyone else's names rhymed. <laughs> right, exactly. So I can see where you would grow up feeling like your family had decided they didn't want you to be a part of kind of their whole thing. I think that this is definitely a lot of Jay rebelling against what her family ostensibly wants for her. I also, like, kind of love the family. Jay might be my least favorite person in their family. I don't think she's my least favorite, but she's solidly in the middle. Yeah, true, fair. And that's not to say that I dislike her. I think that that just speaks to what well-rounded, like, supporting characters Fuller creates, too. And we're only in the pilot, and we've barely met most of them, and it's just, there's so much done to establish what they are and what they're about, yeah. Oh, right. I, that's, like, my very first impression. The show opens with the whole Made of the Mist origin story. It's immediately very clear and fully realized what world we're going to be living in and the type of tone and who these people are. And for a pilot, that's really impressive because sometimes you make a pilot and like months later you film the rest of the show and a lot has changed, but it stays pretty consistent from the get-go. Yeah. So the thing about Jay that you were saying and how I think that maybe it's 50-50 posturing and possibly not really wanting to try and question the person you've been your whole life. That's something like I can definitely relate to is deciding at 14, 15, this is the person I am and this is what I want to do. And then being like 23, I mean, I don't even know if this is what I want to do or who I am anymore, but do I care enough 
or is it too much work to try and question it? Because I feel like Jay falls into that trap a little bit because we meet Mouth Breather, who is her co-worker, and Slacker in Arms. And he gets a promotion to assistant manager, which let's talk about how they would never do that in front of her, but okay. <laughs> and he, this is like my biggest pet peeve of the whole episode, I think. He does a huge 180. Right. He goes from being like, I'm also fake working to here's the rule book. I'm going to time your personal phone call. Right. Okay, I get maybe, okay, I'm going to maybe try to be less of a slacker, but not to the degree that he becomes up her butt about it. I've worked with those people. People like that who are already slackers who get power do not take that power and then go on to be great employees. They use it to be even shittier employees and get away with it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But anyway, so he gets the promotion and what we see immediately is Jay is kind of pissed off about it. Yeah, I mean, she's definitely hurt by it. And I think that that speaks to something that I don't love about Jay. And part of why I don't love it about her is I don't think she is aware of it. But she wants to not try and she wants to act like she doesn't care about being impressive. But I think at her core, she still believes that people will just see a spark in her and give her things. Like, I went to Brown. People know that I'm actually way more serious than this loser, but, like, they don't because you didn't try and you don't seem to care. And I can see we're in the eyes of the main manager. This guy is 16 and doesn't care, and this girl's 24 and doesn't care. Maybe he'll start to care. You're an adult. Right, exactly. And if you think this job is kind of nothing and it's a way to basically pay your bills, why do you care that you didn't get assistant manager? You're not someone who cares about climbing the ladder anyway. Why are you upset? I was thinking about that too. Like I struggle with Jay because I hate to call her condescending because she's not in the classic definition, but a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I don't think of her as condescending, but I definitely think she has a superiority complex. I definitely think she looks down on the other people around her. She looks at these people and thinks, oh my god, you tried really hard and this is the best you could do? I'm not trying at all and I'm here. It's also kind of feels like she's projecting that too because she says that her whole family tries really hard and they're dissatisfied anyway. You don't really get the impression that they're that dissatisfied with their lives. Yeah, not from what we see in the pilot especially. I mean, her sister has some personal... Right. They've got normal things in their life, but I don't think they're sitting at home going oh, I haven't achieved all the things I want to achieve and I'm so unhappy. I just feel like they're normal people. And a certain degree of dissatisfaction is normal in life. And I think it's interesting that Jay is, she's categorized as Gen Y, mostly because I think Wonderfalls probably premiered at a time when the millennial term hadn't been coined yet. But she does definitely exhibit some of those very stereotypical let's complain about millennials on the internet kind of things. Like thinking that life should have no dissatisfaction and that even these very normal, acceptable degrees of dissatisfaction in life are problematic to the point that you need to rebel and just be miserable. It's also that whole era of the mid-2000s where it became very uncool to care about something. So Gretchen Speck shows up and there's that whole thing where she says, you're not a manager, you're a loser, essentially. (laughs) And Jay is like, "Mm, cut me deep. (laughs) (laughs) And Mouth Breezer gets the promotion and does his whole 180. And then she chokes on a sandwich. We'll have to come back to this. This, I think, may be the quote unquote powder cake moment when the voices start happening. So then we meet the customer from hell. Anyone who's ever worked in any kind of customer service has met this woman, and she's the worst. 
As someone who has worked in retail, the thing that I felt for Jay so hard was that she tried to enforce a legitimate store policy and then the manager comes and makes her look like an asshole who doesn't understand how things work. Oh, I know. I know. I know. I've never worked in retail, but I've worked as a hostess and there's like nothing worse than when you are genuinely just following the rules and doing your job and the manager comes in and says no and breaks the rules for you. Now you've made me the bad guy. All I was doing was what you told me to do. Exactly. Because what happens is she's like, I want my discount for this coupon that I know that I had and I clearly had on my person this entire time, but just assumed you would give me without showing it to you. So she wants this discount. Also, it's less than $4, so go away. I hate you. <laughs> I <laughs> Not that I'm a Rockefeller by any means, but why do you have to be such a bitch about $4? Right. And so what happens is she has this smush face wax lion, which is the title of the episode, Wax Lion. And he talks to her and says, don't give her her money back. This is the first instance of anything talking to her. Jay is, all right, I'm going to quietly pretend this isn't happening and ignore it and gives her her money back. And then her purse is immediately snatched. This is the only thing that one of the inanimate objects told Jay to do that I have a hard time seeing the through line for. What the wax lion wanted to accomplish by Jay not giving her the money. Was it just to hold her in the store a little bit longer so the assistant manager would have to come physically give her the money and the purse snatcher wouldn't be there? Or So the money wouldn't have been in the purse when it got snatched? And it's $4. Anything else that was in the purse was more valuable than the $4. If she had walked out without the discount, she would have still gotten her purse stolen and still been pissed. And if anything, the purse being stolen forces Jay to kind of continue her journey there and return the purse to the woman and have a bigger growth moment than anything that could have resulted from not giving her the money. So I was curious, do you see a clear through line? Well, see, this is where... And we can get more into this later when we talk about who we think is behind the voices. Because my impression from this episode alone is that it's a subconscious or her id kind of thing. Where mm -hmm. it's her, her inner voice just saying, don't give her her money back. She's a bitch. She doesn't deserve it. <laughs> the next scene after Jay faints, after the lion talks to her and the purse is snatched. He's like, told you, don't give her her money back. If we go to the trailer and we basically meet her entire family. I love her family. I love them so much. I love her family so much. I will say, Lee Pace, who I love, he has like the second best eyebrows in the business. <laughs> Wait, who's number one? Who's number one? Peter Gallagher, obviously. <laughs> the man okay, has good. like 50% <laughs> eyebrows. <laughs> he is. He is. He's 50% eyebrows. That's a good way to describe Peter Gallagher. Oh my God. Okay. But Lee is a solid close second. He's only in this one scene, and he only has a couple of lines. I remember from watching this, the first time I ever watched it, I really like her brother. He's a religion studies mm -hmm. major and an atheist. He also is a really good foil for Jay. But in this scene alone, the very little bit we get, I'm kind of like, Aaron's a douche. Not that he's not a douche later, but in this specifically, he's kind of a two-dimensional douche. Well, and he gets very little attention. I mean, he and like really her mom and dad, as much as I like all of them, the pilot is really when it comes to family about Jay and Sharon's relationship. So they definitely, they all get like a little bit of a, a two-dimensional treatment. Although I really love when the mom is trying to get the daughter to like go to therapy or take medication and the dad, who is clearly a doctor because the mom's like prescribe her something is like, no, no, no. We don't want to just jump right into medicating her. Honey, when's the last time you had an orgasm? And it's like, 
That made me love the dad so much. Like the reaction of all the family in the trailer is clearly this is the kind of shit he just says all the time. That's his thing. They're all just wide side-eyeing him. Does not have the best boundaries between what is clearly his area of work and like applying that to his family. I think that of what we get of the, the family, the dad seems like the one who has the least judgment and most genuine altruistic care for Jay. The mom, I think, not that she does not care about her, I think she does, but she also significantly cares about how Jay reflects upon her. To me, she reads as someone who has a very clear idea in her head of what it means to be happy and successful, and she wants that for her kids. And I think she just can't see alternative ways to get to the finish line, whereas the dad can. He's like, I want her to be happy, do what you want to do, live a fulfilled life. But he can also tell, obviously, that Jay is not doing that. The reason I don't totally love Aaron, just on this episode alone, he has two lines. He makes a joke that she's pooping, which, ah ha ha, Brian Fuller, you are better than toilet jokes. Then he has the whole thing about, clearly she's disturbed, she's living in a trailer park. He's being somewhat hyperbolic, but the judgment underneath it, totally real. Yeah, I think that judgment is definitely real, and I think that's a nice way to establish for us the lifestyle of her family and, like, the level of disappointment that they would feel. They're, you know, a doctor and a... Do we really establish what Karen does? Karen's an author. We learn that in later episodes, I think. And Sharon's a lawyer. But they're, like, they're very affluent. They sent their kids to Ivy League schools. For them, I think it speaks to just how difficult it would be for them to understand her finding happiness in any kind of life that didn't meet a certain standard that they have. Well, that she would value independence by any means rather than living in affluent upper middle class suburbia because it's the easier thing to do. It just feels a little condescending on his part oh, yeah. as if you can't have a totally fulfilled and good life living in a trailer or that all trailer parks are just garbage cesspools, which they're not. We also later learn that Aaron lives at home. He's doing almost just as much of nothing with his life as Jay is, but he does not get looked at it all the same way. Right, because he's like taking kind of the academic path, which is like the respectable way to do nothing. <laughs> which I also think her parents probably would have been fine with that if she'd wanted to get a PhD in philosophy and just eventually teach. I think that would have been fine with them. Sharon comes off as not that judgmental, but kind of just over it. I think their whole relationship dynamic is super well nuanced. I love you, you're my family, but I also hate you sometimes. Well, I think Sharon hates Jay quite a bit. Not like hates her, actually hates her, but like family hates her. But I think it's a lot to do with Jay, and I think that that could also, I mean, we don't really get into the more nuanced side of her relationship with Aaron, but a lot of that's on Jay, at least with the relationship with Sharon. Like, she's been kind of an objectively shitty sister. I think that's the impression that we're, we're given. I feel like there's a little bit, at least in their present state, of her being an adult, not a kid. Because we get told when she's a teenager that she stole her money and stole her makeup. Did things that siblings do that are shitty, but they're not. Don't hold that against them when they're like 24 years later. But I feel like it's a little bit of feeding into each other and self-fulfilling. Jay thinks that Sharon hates her, so she treats her like she hates her. And Sharon thinks that Jay hates her, so she treats her like she hates her. You know what I mean? Oh, totally. Well, and I think it goes beyond just the petty sibling theft. I think, you know, later in the episode, Sharon talks about Jay sets her up on the date with the delivery guy. And she's like, you've never like once even taken an interest in my life or who I might 
be interested in or if I was ever dating anyone and now you're setting me up on a, a blind date. This is really weird. The bigger issue for them is probably that Jade just really doesn't seem to care about who Sharon is as a person, you know? And, you know, by the same virtue, I'm sure Sharon has very little idea of who Jay is as a person. And it seems like it's definitely been a long brewing feeling of animosity it's just between all of them. But it's how much of it is the family pushing her away and how much of it is Jay pushing them away? I think a lot of it is Jay pushing them away. I think that that's, that's just kind of what Jay does. I think she pushes most people away. Or not being able to see their true motives. Her mom loves her and wants her to be happy. She just does not know how to show it in the way that Jay wants her to show it. You know what I mean? Jay just hears, why aren't you doing X, Y, and Z with your life? When what Karen's really saying is, I want you to live a happy and fulfilled life. All Jay hears is the criticism. Yeah, totally. I feel like Jay probably had some kind of moment early on in her life, obviously, where she decided that she was this black sheep. Maybe it was, you know, when she learned what rhymes were and that her name wasn't a rhyme with everyone else's. Or maybe it was an actual moment. At some point, something happened that made Jay, like, really cement as kind of her sense of self this idea of being a black sheep. And I think she's really embraced that. And I think it informs a lot of the decisions that she makes and a lot of her view of herself and her view of the world. I think a lot of that goes back to her family and the dynamic there. Right. We get, like, a throwaway line or what seems to be a throwaway line later with Sharon and Jay. And I don't think it gets brought up again in the rest of the series, but I could be wrong, where she says, are you starving yourself again? Now, is that Sharon exaggerating or did Jay have a legit eating disorder when she was a kid? I noticed that too, and I don't know. I haven't seen a lot of the episodes in years and I I haven't watched ahead. But yeah, I, I don't remember that being addressed later or being a thing, but I could be wrong. I don't think I've even seen every episode. But that is really interesting and a weird, weird thing to add as a throwaway line if you're not going to come back to it in some way. Because Sharon's like, why are you acting so weird? Are you starving yourself again? Is that why you're acting so crazy? I don't know if we're supposed to take that with a grain of salt or not. Because Jay, I think, has a whole self-esteem thing happening. But I don't know that she is insecure about her appearance. Like, we don't really get that from her. No, it doesn't quite seem to fit, although... It could speak to kind of underlying emotional and and mental health issues that haven't been addressed or that have been, you know, suppressed or not properly dealt with. If you know anything about psychology, this age is pretty typical for when mental illnesses start to show up, probably because you've recently graduated college and you're trying to figure out how to deal with the real world and it's a lot of stress and pressure. The early 20s is when most mental illnesses show up in women. So definitely a possibility. Yeah. So she goes to Dr. Ron, who has the best Jerry Curl mullet in the business, <laughs> which is where we get the whole, let's talk about your family. And Jay's like, they hate me. One less person to worry about, which stop deflecting. <laughs> and we have the second instance of an object talking to her, which is this monkey statue. What do you think about that one? I don't see. I don't know. The monkey statue... I like the monkey statue because, at least from our view, and I know that like later we find out he actually speaks to Jay and tells her to steal him, but what I think is like really cool about the way he interacts with her in the moment, at least, is that he's very much just kind of like silently living his life. Like He's just sitting there reading his book, hanging out, kind of taking in what she's saying. 
Do you get the impression that he's listening in on all the therapy patients? He might not be talking to all of them, but this is totally old hat for him. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's a really nice way of showing how how her delusion or this magic or this whatever it is works in the world. Well, the monkey is essentially just parroting what Dr. Ron is saying the entire time. Jay is not here for this whole therapy session. She's not really listening and she's not really giving much to him. But when the monkey talks, she can't ignore it. Yeah. Kind of bigger picture what the monkey, to me, kind of represented was... Jay is very resistant to therapy. She doesn't want to be doing this. She doesn't want to be talking about how she feels. And by stealing the monkey... She forces herself to continue engaging with that idea. Even if she's not in therapy, she's still connected. She could have just as easily ignored him and left him. Right. The decision to take him with her and to follow that directive, especially when she had not followed the only other directive she's been given so far, is really interesting. We learn that she steals the monkey when we very first meet Mahandra, who is her best friend, who I love so much. She's the only actor that I recognize going into the show because it's played by the beautiful Tracy Toms, who was Joanne in Rent. So Mahandra is a waitress and she's been best friends with Jay at least since high school. We know that much. And the reason I love Mahandra is she reminds me of you. Because she's like, I am fully aware of the not great person that you are, and I'm not going to try and change you, but I'm also not going to forgive you of these sins, and I love you anyway. <laughs> and it's interesting because Mahandra, her level of concern and worry, and what she shows concern and worry for, is very interesting. When Jay says that Monkey told her to steal him, she's like, uh-huh, okay, whatever. And then when she says, I fainted at work, she's like, are you okay? I think Mahandra is really interesting. I think it's also really interesting. It's really clear that this is supposed to be Jay's best friend. And the only times we see her interact with her are at the bar when she's visiting her at work, which I think says so much about Jay and who she is and how she prioritizes life and relationships. We don't see them hanging out at Jay's place. We don't see Mahandra like, invited into Jay's inner life in any way. They're not even hanging out at a coffee shop in both of their free time. It's just that Jay kind of inserts herself when it's convenient for Jay and then runs. Right. Mahandra's not even off the clock. She's there while Mahandra's working. No, she's working. Right. Mahandra seems to have no problem with this. It seems very much par for the course. And I don't know, you know, we'll have to get, I think, further into it to kind of determine if that's a shared characteristic that they have, or she's just used to that being how Jay is. But I do think it's really interesting because typically if we see someone meeting with their best friend, it's portrayed as like usually a very intimate kind of exchange. She's telling her something very personal and very private, and they're doing it in public while Mahandra And bartender is like right there. Yeah. Jay is like weirdly open and weirdly guarded, like open in that she's comfortable discussing this very weird thing in public, but guarded in that, like, I think she feels more comfortable being in public and able to escape very quickly than like actually having the conversation in a place where it could get to a different level, if that makes sense. Right. Or I wonder if part of it is maybe she just assumes that no one is paying attention to her. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that there's that, too. But, yeah, she's not a complete recluse or, like, hermit. She doesn't remove herself entirely out of the public eye, but she doesn't want to be engaged with the public. 
And this is also our introduction to what's his name? Eric. Eric. Her, uh, her love interest, Eric, yeah. Who, um, he's fine. He's just fine. Is he? Yeah, oh, I would love to know your thoughts, because I've got a lot of thoughts about Eric. <laughs> oh, Eric. Oh, man. I mean, he's... His backstory is, like, so it's weird. super weird. Jay only likes him because he's doing the absolute wrong thing. Right, right. He says, like, basically, I'm abandoning my life and I'm just going to live here. And she's like, that's so cool. She's so romanticizing the idea of that. Yeah. And she's romanticizing bad decisions and kind of objectively poor life choices. Uh -huh. And I think that she sees herself in him and, like, appreciates it. But the proper response to... I mean, I guess there's no proper response to anything. Like, everyone can experience their life how they, they please. But it does not seem like the healthiest response to being left six days into your marriage because your wife cheats on you is to stay in the tourist city where she cheated on right. you. Right. So, like, Jay's go-to of, like, don't deal with the thing. That's how you deal with it, by not dealing with it. But, like, I relate to this a lot. Not the not dealing with it, but, like, Jay romanticizing the idea of, just abandoning everything that she's known and starting over somewhere that she has like no idea but like romanticizing that whole abstract of running away one you're not even thinking about the reality of what that would be like it's just the abstract idea that you're attracted to but it's so typical to think that it's a geography problem and it's not a me problem you know what i mean you're gonna go somewhere new you're still gonna be you you have to deal with what's going on within you that's making you unhappy with your life Going somewhere else is not going to magically fix that. Yeah. Well, and the really interesting thing about both Eric and Jay and this kind of running away and choosing to fail before you fail on accident kind of idea is that they're not really running away. They're both forcing themselves to stay in the place that will make this potential failure or this perceived failure the most in the forefront of their mind, I guess. Jay is in her hometown. She's around her parents. If she really wanted to run away and not deal with the perceived shame that she sees coming from them, she could go anywhere else. She came home. And, you know, Eric could quit his job, move, you know, to California or, you know, across the world. He can move, you know, abroad. And he doesn't. He chooses to stay right at the scene of the crime where the pain is the most present. Right. They're not getting any closure. Yeah. So the whole thing with his backstory. I also realized in the pilot his wife is not played by jewel state which made me really sad because she's played by the beautiful jewel state in the later parts of the season she's some other actress in this episode but anyway he comes to niagara on his honeymoon and he comes in and finds her giving a blowjob to a bellhop and decides oh and like not even an attractive bellhop no not even attractive <laughs> like which is <laughs> and the whole story he gives jay is that like she's really into high quality sheets and the sheets just got her so horny that she had to just put a dick in her <laughs> i thought that was him being sarcastic like i guess it was just the sheets were so nice she had to like act on it I didn't read that as like him actually thinking that's why she did it, but it doesn't really quite make sense why she did it. I think the only thing you can assume is that she's been cheating on him a lot. Well, that's okay. I don't want to hashtag spoilers. <laughs> that is not what we learn. Do you not remember why she did it? No, no. I don't actually know why she did okay, it. Okay. I don't want to spoil it. The whole reasoning is really stupid. 
her character. I don't understand it. Maybe I should watch ahead so I actually know what I'm talking about. No, don't. Don't do it. <laughs> but anyway, do you get the impression that they're like childhood sweethearts? Or like this was a long-term relationship prior to them getting married? Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. I get if you find her blowing a guy in your honeymoon suite, like you would be like, okay, done. Right then and there. But he says it's been six days. And he's now flirting with Jay pretty clearly. Oh, yeah. He's like, I'm ready for a rebound. How are you just over it that quickly? I don't understand. Yeah. Presumably, this was the love of your life. You just married six days ago. (laughs) Well, and he does make the comment, like, I think I'm just about numb enough for a rebound. Maybe he thinks that this will somehow numb the pain. But, like, there's this whole interaction where they do have, like, a palpable chemistry that's not just sexual. Right. You really don't get the impression that he's like, hey, let's go hook up and have sex. He's like, hey, I'm into you. Let's go on a date and have sex. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not him just going out to, like, hate sex away his feelings. Right. I get You can't control, you can be, like, in love with multiple people at one time or attracted to someone while you're also with someone else. But, like, I just have a real problem with his whole timeline of it being six days since he just got married to presumably the love of his life. Yeah, he's super problematic. I think of him as kind of, like, a manic pixie dream boy. Yes. He's just, like, appearing to be what she thinks she needs or wants him to be. Right. I'm sure there's a TV trope word for it, but I don't know it. But, like, he's kind of a male Mary Sue to some degree. Yeah. I don't know why I'm supposed to really like you or care about you other than, like, you have chemistry and you seem to like Jay, who we're supposed to like. Right. His entire backstory is contrived to make him the person that Jay will want to date, and he just kind of serves the function of sitting there and being attracted to her, and that's kind of what he does. But Jay does turn him down, which she says, I think I might be going crazy right now, like, still kind of deflecting sarcasm as a defense mechanism. But, like, she does turn him down, so at least there's that. Yeah, but, like, I don't know. That also felt a little bit contrived. Like, she has to turn him down because their love story needs to be teased out. (laughs) Right, they're clearly establishing, like, a will-they-won't-they thing. But, like, if you want me to think that these guys could be, like, soulmates in-game, like, I just don't think that this is the setup to do that. Right. Six days out and not dealing with it, technically married at this point. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe I'll feel differently as we watch forward. I don't know. And then we have Mom comes up and says, hey, give Dr. Ron back his monkey because he won't see me until you do. And, like, Mom, not concerned that Jay is now a thief, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Just mad that she can't keep going to therapy. She also didn't want her to go to Dr. Ron to begin with because she didn't want Dr. Ron to get ideas. Are you lying to Dr. Ron about the type of person that you are, Mom? Like, I don't... (laughs) I want to like her mom. Well, the way that Karen phrases not wanting Jay to see her therapist, the she'll give him ideas comment, that's a little bit weird. But I do understand and respect the instinct to not want someone you're close to to have the same therapist as you. True, true. Um, like, I can I can definitely see where that would feel like an invasion of privacy in a way. Right. Even though he wouldn't talk to them about each other. No. He he wouldn't, but it's just kind of... Uh, he can't, like, listen to your what you're telling him in a vacuum anymore because now he knows the other stuff, right? I think most therapists right. would not be down with that in general. I don't know. 
Yeah, that would be my instinct as well. Or that if if he were going to see Jay, it would be in a joint. Right. It's either together or not at all. Yeah. Right. I totally get that instinct and that desire for your therapist to kind of only hear your side of things and be able to give you feedback based on how you perceive the world and not trying to become the subjective third party. I get it. I think she said it in a weird way, but I don't judge her for that. I don't like hold that against the mom. I just definitely saw it as you know that you're not being totally honest with your therapist. Right. But like you're allowed to not be totally honest with your therapist and you're allowed to not be the best person and know you're not the best person and still want whatever it is you're getting from therapy to continue happening. Right. True, true, true. And like Jay should give the fucking monkey back. Uh, but I love the monkeys. Oh, no, I love the monkey. I want Jay to have the monkey and for the mom to still get to continue her mental health care. I also love there's like a whole thing about how he has cameras because someone tried to stab him once. It's like people in Niagara apparently are just going bonkers on the daily. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, it's a tourist town, so everyone works in retail. It sounds like a nightmare. All right, so let's do the whole fist fight at the hotel, and then we'll get into the whole Sharon and poor bitch of it all. So she, the, this is the one thing that makes me think that the voices are not subconscious and are God, is she basically ends up following the quarter into a trash can, finding the purse. Because the lion says, see a penny, pick it up, tells her to go get this quarter. How did they know she was going to throw it? You know what I mean? Because what happens is the, the eagle moves, and she gets spooked and throws it. It rolls. She chases it. It ends up in a trash can and she finds the woman's purse. What, like, how did they know she was going to throw that quarter and that it was going to go that way? That's some super intervention of God. The altercation at the hotel is interesting and weird. I hate that woman so much. Oh, well, yeah. We're not supposed to like her. We're not supposed to like I know we're not supposed to. I know that's like, that statement is like saying, the sky is blue. But, like, I hate her so much. Oh, well, yeah, it's because you and I have, like, dealt with droves of those people who it's like, I'm trying to be nice and reasonable. Why are you this way? Well, also, like, this is another one where it's very weird that this is what anything her subconscious or God or anyone wants her to do. The woman gains nothing by getting that purse back. The purse is empty and broken and tacky. Well, the, the voices didn't tell her to get it back. She tells Mahandra... She comes into the bar with a black eye, essentially, and is like, why did you do this? And she's like, I don't know. I wanted to see what it would be like to, like, what, be nice? Well, that's true. And assumes that that's the meaning. But that's the weird thing is, like, I don't even think it's that nice. Like, if I, if my purse was stolen, and after removing everything I wanted from it, and it was broken, the person threw it in a trash can... I would not consider it nice for someone to bring me my empty, dirty trash purse. I would be like, I don't want this. <laughs> and like, let's be real, that purse is hideous. <laughs> right. It's tacky and terrible. It's, and even if I liked it like, to be with. Like, maybe it's designer. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, misguided Jay thought that this would, like, win her favor in this woman's eyes or something. Like, why right. do you care if this woman gives you brownie points? She goes to the hotel, knocks on all these doors, finds the woman's, and I found your purse. The woman's like, oh, so you were in cahoots with this purse snatcher to get my $4 and my makeup and tampons. Right. Um, And they get into a fist fight. 
What's interesting about that is at the end of it, the bitchy customer's kid says thank you. So, like, at the end of the day, Jay's good deed, quote unquote, is rewarded. It is. A little bit, yeah. It's at least acknowledged. It's acknowledged, yeah. So, he is detained by the police at the hotel for disorderly conduct, and she calls Sharon to basically get her out of it. Why, I don't know she had to call Sharon, but sure. Well, she said she called, like, six people before Sharon, too. Right. Well, Sharon, and she does this twice, asks, how many people did you call before you called me? Which is really telling about Sharon's character, that she wanted to have been called first. As much as she doesn't want to be the one to clean up Jay's mess, she does not want to be Jay's last resort. And I can see that, you know. It can be frustrating to clean up anybody's mess, but especially in sibling dynamics, it can be frustrating to be put into that parent role if that's not what you want. But you also, you want to be that person's number one call. You want to be the one that they feel like they can count on. So I get that. Right. The lion tells Jay to make me a match. And Jay assumes that she's supposed to hook her up with poor bitch. What's his name again? I don't remember his name. I don't know. It doesn't matter. I hate him anyway. <laughs> oh, God. I know. I will say the wax lion refers to him as poor bitch, which I think is an indicator that maybe it's not God being the voice of the wax lion. Yeah. And then there's a whole moment where he says, ask him about the ring he doesn't wear, which we learned that Jay knew he didn't wear a ring. Right. And that he had talked to her about it and she had zoned out and not paid attention is like the implication, I thought. Right. Which is so weird that they had had a conversation of any kind of depth beyond, hey, how are you? How's the weather? Right. He had told her, hey, I got a divorce, which like... Is he the kind of sad sack who just volunteers that information to someone who's completely stonewalling him? Or did they have a conversation? And did he explain to her that his wife left him because she's interested in women? Because that would also... Well, I don't think he knew that his wife, his ex-wife now, is a lesbian or or whatever she is, bisexual possibly. Although, I kind of think he does know. Because at the end we get that moment where the new girl is checking out other random random customer customer. and he's like oh god again but i don't know if that's supposed to be that he's known it for a while or if it just came to his attention at the hospital but yeah so the lion gets her to try to set up the sister with the ups guy now here's my question for you do you think that based on the two very small interactions we get with him and jay that he's kind of into jay yeah i really felt like he was flirting with and hitting on jay I can't, like, I'm conflicted. The first time I watched it again for this, I was like, okay, he's definitely trying to hit on every girl with a vagina in his vicinity. Fuck boy to the extreme. But then I watched it again, maybe he's not trying to hit on everyone. Like, maybe he's just super lonely and sad. And, like, just wants any kind of human interaction. Well, I think there's definitely that. I think... Because we see him in the bar at a table by himself. He's lonely, like... (sighs) sad man sighing to himself. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's definitely the element of him being, like, lonely and sad, but I think he also sees that in Jay, and he thinks, like, here's maybe somebody I could be lonely and sad with. If not as, like, a romantic thing, at least maybe she would listen and understand my sadness. Sharon meets poor bitch when she comes with the mom, for some reason, to the store to ask about the monkey, and Karen, the mom, is like, oh, they're cute, they should, yeah. 
Because mom, apparently, we get the impression, is constantly trying to force Sharon to go out with dudes or see if they're cute. Well, the mom, I think, is probably, she's obviously not aware that Sharon's a lesbian. No, not at all. This is the way that her trying to help manifests with Sharon is like, she still, she has that one idea of what it means to be happy and fulfilled. And that is married with like a house and 2.5 kids and a good job and, you know, all these things. Karen's already got the degree and the job. She's successful. All she needs now is the, 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 man, the relationship. Right. Like she can't figure out this part, so. Right, so now that's what she's leaning in on. And I think the mom very much sees Sharon as just kind of pathetic and like a loser in love kind of situation. I think she's like, oh, she just can't get out there for some reason or can't find the right guy. I don't think it occurs to her that she might, by choice, not be. Not want that. Not even not want that as in like, not want a dude but like maybe she's not prioritizing a relationship i don't think that's the case because like we see her in bed with a body pillow and it's really cute <laughs> i'm just like oh sharon with your human sized body pillow <laughs> how very liz lemon of you <laughs> <laughs> so jay decides okay i'm gonna make poor bitch and sharon go on a date and i like that she brings the wax lion and puts him on the table as if like he must witness this event <laughs> Like, it's not enough for her to do it. He has to see it happen. Yeah, or like, and maybe he'll have further instructions or... <laughs> right. Now, she brings them both there under false pretenses. She tells poor bitch that Sharon thought he was super cute. And then she tells Sharon nothing, basically, right? Yeah, she just leaves a lot of messages at her office, it seems. Being like, you know, emergency... Right, wear something slimming, <laughs> which, like, what a subtle dig, because Sharon is a babe, shut up. <laughs> I think this is my favorite line of the whole episode, with the second being Mahandra being like, crazy like when I put cameras in my house and pretended I was on Big Brother, because, <laughs> oh, Mahandra, like, you are all of us. <laughs> but Sharon shows up and just says, this better be good, because I'm having a real hard time getting it up for your drama. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is so Sharon in a nutshell and why I love her. Chris said that he kind of felt like Sharon's a bitch. And I feel like I don't get that from her at all. And I think that maybe it's the typical perspective to see any woman who's super blunt and straightforward as being a bitch when she's not trying to be, like, polite and make you feel good. Yeah, I think everything Sharon does is, it's very, yeah, she's just very genuine and straightforward, like you said. Like, I don't, I don't consider her particularly bitchy because I don't think her responses are ever out of line with the situation that she's in like I don't think she's ever being unreasonable she definitely just comes right out with it with Jay and constantly is like wait hey was I your first call or not like she doesn't like let any of that fester we could get the impression that she's feeling that but she just comes right out and asks it like with the not UPS guy who's like well Jay said that you thought I was really cute and she's like no I didn't I don't think that immediately shuts him down which is like the kinder thing to do exactly yeah it's actually the nicer thing to do you know and she didn't say it in a nice way but like that's the kind of thing where there's really only one way to say it if you sugarcoat it too much you just you risk leading the person on or making them not understand what you're actually trying to say so yeah she immediately is just like nothing's gonna happen i didn't think you were cute and then of course he turns into like full yeah. fuck boy mode where he's like, is it because I'm not handsome enough? Because my teeth are crooked? Which, no. And then he says, it's because I'm too sensitive, right? No. You're the worst. 
I'm just waiting for him to be like, I'm a nice guy. Why don't any women ever want to be with me? And then Sharon says, it's because I'm a lesbian. I'm not interested because I'm a lesbian. And he doesn't just accept it, which makes me so infuriated. His reaction is like, I'm, it's because of, it's not, couldn't possibly be she's actually a lesbian. It's got to be something else. Right, and implies that, like, this is, like, the lie she tells to get out of telling guys why she doesn't like them or something. Right, which, ugh, I hate you. Like, if women do do that, it's because you won't accept that I don't like you as a good enough reason. Right, I'm a big believer in that you don't have to justify yourself if you're rejecting someone or breaking up with someone. Not everybody deserves a reason. Sometimes it's just like it's an indescribable, like, I just gut feeling I don't want to do this thing. And like, it's not the kind of thing where if you don't have a good enough reason, you're wrong and suddenly you do have to date them. That's not how that works. <laughs> oh, and the thing about Sharon too that's interesting is when she asks her at the dinner table before poor bitch shows up, again, am I the first person you called? And Jay says, yes, you were. You can clearly see that, like, she's happy about it. Sharon wants a relationship with Jay. She only doesn't want it because Jay doesn't want it. You know what I mean? She's like, fine, if you don't want to be in a relationship with me or have a connection and whatever. But, like, if you're on board, I'm on board. Sharon wants a relationship with Jay, yeah. So this entire time that poor Mitch and Sharon are talking, she's over there with Eric flirting, and he says that they're so simpatico and... Please don't ever say that word again. <laughs> and just continuing to be really weird because it's been six days. What's going on with this relationship that you're building? But she comes back to the table and poor bitch is dying from anaphylactic shock because he's allergic to nuts. If you have a deathly allergy, how are you going to not read a menu? <laughs> well, and it's a giant, giant goiter on his neck. I just feel like you would know something was wrong before then, but whatever. <laughs> On the way in the car, Jay gets looped into the fact that Sharon is a lesbian, and her first reaction is, can I tell mom? Because she's perversely delighted at the prospect of making her mother lose it. Right. Do you think that Sharon's and Jay's mom would be upset that Sharon's a lesbian? I think that's the implication, yeah. I think she would get over it. Well, yeah. I think, like, based on nothing, her dad would just be like, whatever, because he just seems very cool, roll with the punches. But I think her mom would initially be like, uh, how do I have, like, damage control in the media of how this is going to reflect upon me as if that matters? Yeah, I mean, I think the mom would struggle with it at first, if only because it would represent, like, a major upset to her worldview. And I think anything that doesn't fit into how she's preconceived the notion of how the world and how specifically her family and her world should be really upsets her. She has a hard time with that. But I don't think it would be like a permanent issue with them. And I think the issue would be more with her mom's expectations being subverted, not the actual issue of shared sexuality. Yeah. 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 Um, I love that Jay is like not surprised. It takes her like 0.2 seconds to be like, okay, that makes sense. Yep. Right. They get to the hospital, and we meet poor bitch's ex-wife, or current wife, I'm assuming, since they called her. And there is a erotic pin smudging scene that I'm both turned on and grossed out by. <laughs> because I inherently, like, don't lick your finger and then touch <laughs> me. That's really gross. But also, I get that it's supposed to be sexy, and it kind of is. It was fine. That whole plot, the whole thing with the date and the allergic reaction and the wife felt very like, you know. It's all just to get them all in one place. Right. 
and it is what it is. Like, I don't actually have a problem with that. The TV show has to get us where it needs us to be, so that's fine. If anything, the only thing that upset me was that this kind of awful guy gets, like, the hot nurse's attention immediately. Well, also, like, you know nothing about her. You've said zero words to her, but he's immediately like, oh, hot, pretty girl. I guess this is who I'm in love with now. You've gone from your wife to Jay to Sharon to now hot nurse in a 45-minute TV show. So, yeah, poor bitch. I've got a lot of problems with him. I think the, the last scene is at the trailer, right? Or maybe the second to last scene. But Sharon comes to Jay's trailer and, like, you have this really nice interaction where she is surprised but concerned and supportive about, like, Jay's apparently turning a new leaf of some kind. And you feel like they're just, like, bonding over their... They both feel pressure to meet their mom's expectations and, like, they're coming together at least on that forefront. And Jay says, I love you, and is like, I don't feel dirty. I thought I would feel dirty. And Sharon kind of laughs, but it's really cute. It's a nice moment. There's one more thing before she gets her next assignment. She is at the Maid of the Mist Fountain and has interaction with bartender Eric. He says, I wrote down, life can be sort of peaceful when you stop struggling, which is something that he says. And it's like, that's Jay's entire life mythos, basically. <laughs> but like... <sighs> I wrote, Jay is, like, supposed non-struggling and deliberate underachieving is actually, like, swimming upstream. It's taking concerted effort for her to not try. I mean, my personal philosophy, but I think there's a huge problem with not try so you can't fail. Because then you're just choosing to fail. You know, my personal philosophy is that, like, you should always be working towards something. And if you try your hardest and you fail, then that's still better than not trying or trying for something easier that you would have definitely succeeded at. I hope that that's the overall tone of the show. I hope that's what we're supposed to get from it as we move forward. But, like, they're definitely bonding over this. This whole, like, it's, we're, let's not deal with our problems. And I'm just like, I don't know why I'm supposed to be rooting for this relationship where, like, they're both bringing out the worst in each other. At least right now they are. And maybe that's just being established so they have kind of room to grow. Yeah. All right. Well, that basically covers the episode. Do you want to talk about the like, reoccurring segment of who do we think is the Voices of the Objects? Voices of God or Voice of Madness? Yeah, sure. You want to go first? I think right now my vote is going to be that it's something internal with Jay. Maybe not necessarily mental illness, but it's coming from Jay's own head. Maybe it's her subconscious trying to get to her. Mahandra talks about it. She has a line that she's been psychologically repressing something. And what happens when you repress something is it comes back all crazy and pissed off. That's my thing. It's not, I think, 100% supported by what we see in the pilot. And it might get totally thrown out the window from what we see going forward. But that's what I'm thinking as of the pilot. What about you? So, I think... I don't know if this is a combination or a third option, mm -hmm. but I tend to believe, or I tend to choose to interpret, I guess is the better way to put it. When a TV show or a movie shows me magic, I like to believe that it's actually magic and not that it's in someone's head. I like the version where Dorothy actually went to Oz. I don't want it to be a dream. It's much more interesting if she actually went to Oz than if she just like worked some stuff out. And so I kind of feel like the fountain is actually magic. And I feel like, like my interpretation of it, and this might be like cast a little bit wide, 
is like she throws the quarter backwards, right? And it bounces off the Maid of the Mist onto the back of her head and then back into the uh, fountain. And so the way that I kind of interpret that is that everything that's happening is happening to fulfill Jay's wish. And the fact that the coin bounced literally off the back of her head is like kind of symbolic of the fact that these might not even be things she realized she wants. And so I think that it's like a combination. I think that it is something magical that's affecting it. I don't think it's all just her inner... I don't think it's a mental illness necessarily, and I don't think it's things that she thinks coming out just through the the soul of the objects or whatever. But I do think that the magic of the fountain is trying to help Jay work out what she actually wants from life. She wants a better relationship with her sister, so everything that happened in that episode was leading toward her having this like revelation moment with Sharon. It's a bunch of crazy shit that like all of these little pieces of the puzzle had to kind of fit in. And you know, that's the way that the woman's purse kind of fits in for me. Still not the first moment where she just wouldn't have given her the money. That's weird still. Well, we could, if you look at the first wax lion thing, maybe what he, his purpose is is actually to get her to the therapy's office. Because cause if he gets her to the therapist's office, she steals the monkey, which is what gets Sharon with the EPS guy and the whole date thing. But like going to the woman's uh, hotel room and getting into that fist fight does give her a reason to call Sharon and like reach out to Sharon and establish like something there. She calls her like sixth, so she didn't really take the opportunity so that like the little objects keep working. So that's kind of how I interpret it. I think that this is the magic of the fountain trying to give Jay what she doesn't realize she wants. I think that the show at the end will probably be one of those like it doesn't ever definitively tell us. But I think that that's possible. Like the very, very first thing we see with the show is the whole Made of the Mist origin story, which is essentially that there's this waterfall and it's like taking things from the native tribe that live there, the Indians that live there. And they, this, her dad decides we're going to give it a human sacrifice. And he's like, ah, oh, this is a bad idea. And she's like, no, no, I surrender to destiny. And the god saves her and is rewarded, basically. And, like, the whole, if it's a morality thing, it's noble deeds are rewarded. Or that, like, when, when you follow your destiny, surrender yourself to destiny, that you're going to end up living the life, you, your best life. The next episode, I think, is the Flamingos. Pink Flamingos, yeah. Cool. Any other things? No, I think that pretty much covers it for the pilot. I'm excited to... To keep going and see kind of how, especially the ongoing question of what's causing everything to talk to her, how we feel about that. So, Like, I'm the most fascinated by that because I think it's like the big question, but I don't think the show thinks that it's the big question. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I think he, he probably just wants you to be like, the objects are talking to her, just go with it. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I think that's it. I think till next time, right? Till next time. 